Grit was all about that determination and resilience and persistence, that hard work uh, that had been taught as family values. But grace is also from the background too. Um, maybe just being a female, but maybe being raised in the South. A lot of empathy and compassion. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? It's episode 82. Today, we're talking about leading with grit and grace. Our guest today is Ashley Walters. She's the president of Onyx and author of the book, Leading with Grit and Grace. For context, Onyx is a more than half century old industrial furnace manufacturing and service company based in Pennsylvania. And one where when Ashley became the leader of the company, she truly changed the company's culture for the better. Hence the title of her book and the main theme of this episode. So here's what we're gonna talk about today. First, we're gonna define what it means to lead with both grit and grace. Second, we'll talk about how to begin to move a company out of a command and control culture to one where everyone's voice is heard. And third, we'll get into some really important details as well, like determining whether your company is right for an ESOP, an employee stock option program, and how to prepare a family business for the future. So just a cornucopia of leadership topics today, and Ashley is just the person to cover them all for us. If you want to check out the show notes from this episode or get a link to Ashley's book, head over to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 82. And if you want to join a great community of manufacturing leaders where you can take part in conversations like this, consider joining the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community. That group lives over on LinkedIn. There are over 500 leaders in that group, and you can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. Do me a favor, connect with me on LinkedIn, shoot me a note, and then I will let you right into that group. With that, I think it's time to jump into our interview. Want to get you introduced to Ashley Walters. All right, Ashley, it's great to have you here. And as I was prepping for this conversation, I listened to a, a handful of the other interviews that you had done before. And and something jumped out at me um, when I was listening to Chris Granger over at Eco Asks Why. Um, as I understand it, your favorite adult beverage is Sauvignon Blanc. Is that correct? That's true. <laughs> well, it, in that case, my first question, we always like to set things up as, as if we're having a conversation with someone over a drink, right? So yes. say you're sharing a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc with someone and they ask you, you know, Ashley, what does it mean to lead with grit? What does it mean to lead with grace? And how do you put those two together? Yeah, so when I came up with uh, the title for the book, Leading with Grit and Grace, I really like went back to my background. And I um, grew up in the South, in um, Tennessee, and I'm part of a manufacturing uh, family with three generations of manufacturers. And so for me, grit was all about that determination and resilience and persistence, that hard work. Uh, that had been taught as family values. But grace is also from the background too. Um, maybe just being a female, but maybe being raised in the South, a lot of empathy and compassion. So that is how I kind of defined my leadership style. 
Excellent. And I, I love the way you put that together. I love that balance. And, and I'm glad you brought it up. Leading with Grit and Grace is your book that, that you've written around culture change in, in your own business in the manufacturing industry. So another question to kind of set things up, say, say this is the second question uh, over that glass of wine. <laughs> what does your company Onyx do? How do you describe that if you're having a drink with someone? So that is a really hard one for me to describe. So I'm going to give it my best shot here. So um, it's actually my father-in-law's company. My husband and I were second generation owners and uh, we went on to sell the business. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But what Onyx does um, in 1966, two gentlemen started the company here in Erie, Pennsylvania. And we had a whole lot of foundries in town at the time. And all they did was redistribute refractory products. So they didn't manufacture anything at all. They were just a distribution outlet. And we went on to, um, in the 80s, we started installing those refractory products on the inside of industrial furnaces. These are not the furnaces at your house. These are the furnaces that you'll find in manufacturing facilities across the US. Uh, a lot of times they're processing metal of some sort. Um, and then in the 90s, we went on to do the combustion system, which is the outside of the furnace, so the air and gas piping. Uh, that is, you know, fueling that furnace, making it hot. And we also started designing furnaces. So the short answer, if it's just over a glass of wine, is we're an industrial contractor. And if I usually get like the head nod, no more questions, I just leave it at that. But otherwise, <laughs> uh, i what we really do. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, it's good, right? I think a lot, you know, when you say Erie, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania in general, I think industrial furnaces, when we think American manufacturing, that seems like a, a sweet spot for it as well. Um, so, so, and I wanted to ask that because a lot of the questions, a lot of the interview from here are based on the company and, and the culture that's evolved there over the years. So, you know, you, I, I've heard you say before that when you jumped into Onyx, it had a very much a command and control culture. Can you tell us what that was like to set the stage? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start out with, uh, we've always been a family owned business and we got away from our family centric values uh, when we had a command and control leader. And that command and control style just was not good for us as a company. Um, so when my father-in-law asked me to step in and just generally lead the company, um, command and control is not my style. I knew it was not going to work for me. And uh, so we just moved away from that, um, I guess, kind of naturally, right, as, as the leader that's in place at the time. Um, but somewhat unnaturally, because you've got people who've been told what to do every single step of the way and told not to ask questions. And then I come in and I say, okay, how do we do this? What's going on? Like, what problems are you facing? How can I help you? And it was completely different for them. So it took just a little while to like gain that trust and respect, especially as you can imagine, I'm the daughter-in-law of the president, right? Like, what do I know? <laughs> When you jumped in, was there a moment like before you even got that 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 there that you're like, we're going to have to evolve this culture? Or was that something that you kind of learned, you know, maybe not gradually, but learned over the course of weeks, months when when you first jumped in? Yeah, I think for us, it was just not even a, uh, having to evolve the culture. It was we were in, you know, some pretty severe financial distress. And I just needed everybody to bring their best ideas to the table so that I could hear them, so I could understand what was going on. And then I can make a decision on how to go forward. So it's just really more out of necessity and and me as, a, as my leadership style uh, that we moved away from that command and control. And I think you've heard 
I think I'm sorry. I think I've heard that you created an environment where everyone had a voice. Everyone had something that they could share. How did you create that where, you know, if it was going from command and control, I, I feel like and based on some of the things you said about building trust, right? I feel like that would have been one of the toughest things right off the bat, just getting people comfortable telling you what they thought so that you could change. Yeah. So one of the best pieces of advice I'd ever received was from my father who worked in a plant and it was very command and control. And he said, you know, management would come down on the floor and they would say, do this. And he would say, if I do that, this is going to happen. And they would say, we don't care, just do it. Right. And so when I got my engineering degree, dad said to me, he goes, that's great, but you don't know much at all. He said, you need to go to the plant floor and ask the people closest to the problem, you know, closest to the work, how they would solve it. They already have the solution to the problem you're trying to solve. So that's exactly what I've done my entire career. I've gone to the person physically in their space and said, hey, you know, this seems to not be going correct. Like, could you give me an idea of what we could do? And I would say the most important part of building that trust and respect is to actually take some action with whatever suggestion they've given you. Don't just walk away and do nothing about it. Um, there's parts that we make that go into the aerospace industry. I've gotten some really great ideas on how we can improve the process. We can't touch the process. We cannot change the process or it changes that specification for our client, right? But the communication back is that is an awesome idea. Let's use it somewhere else in our production, but we can't change this. And this is why. And people respect that. They don't, you, they don't have to have their idea done. They just want to know that you heard and are telling them why it can't be done. I love that piece of advice. Not only, hey, for the manufacturing leaders out there, you know, jump out onto the plant floor, listen to what your people have to say, but also take action on that advice as well. And it sounds like even if it's a little incremental change that at least helps move it forward, right? It's something that shows that that you were listening. Yes. And it's something you can celebrate those small successes. I mean, just little things make such a big impact. Well, that I, I'm glad you made that comment. Tell me about celebrating small successes, because another thing that jumped out at me was you've said that change can be fun, right? And I think that's very different from what a lot of people think. So Tell me, how, how do you make change fun? So for us, I think even it goes back to our mission, which is to make things better. And once you get used to changing things, then you kind of, it's almost like addictive, right? It's, you have this bug in you and you're like, oh, I made that better now. Now, what if I did this? Could it be even better? And you, it's, uh, you know, much like exercise, right? Eating right and exercising. When you see those changes on the scale, when you see those changes in your clothes, you get excited and you want to do just a little bit more. Um, but it's incremental. It's not, you're not going to go out there on the plant floor and turn the whole place upside down today and tomorrow everything's going to work great. You know, it's just, you don't lose weight uh, 10 pounds at a time. You don't go from couch potato to marathon overnight. It's just every day making something just a little bit better and there is fun in that there's excitement and joy can you give me maybe uh an, a specific example of of the ways you're doing that at onyx maybe early on or maybe something new that you've done recently that that helps with that yeah so one of the very first things we did was value stream mapping and it was a way for me to get all the teams together and have a conversation in one room. And, and people didn't understand like when they changed something in their process, how it was impacting others on down the line. 
But one of the biggest revelations that came out of that value stream mapping was the waste that we had in the facility that we were in at that time. My uh, production manager was walking 20,000 steps a day between the plant and the office. And what a waste, right? I mean, it was great for a weight loss program, but not good for a manufacturing facility. And so what we did was we moved across town, physically moved the plant across town into a space that was better suited for us. And he only gets in 5,000 steps today, but just a huge impact. It's a brighter, nicer space. Everybody just feels better. You know, if you've ever been in a manufacturing plant, you walked in and it seems like the 1970s are still there. Like I would encourage you, like paint those walls, change that um, carpet. It just makes everybody feel so much better. As, as long as your production manager wasn't like a Fitbit junkie, it sounds like all the changes from, from that were a positive one. Um, there, there's another theme I've heard you talk about. You've written blog posts about it. It's in your book, um, Freedom to Fail. Uh, can you define what that is? So for us, a lot of this journey is all about like lean principles and tools. And as I mentioned, we started out with value stream mapping, but then we realized like we have to teach problem solving skills. Remember we had that command and control leader. So people's problem solving skills weren't as sharp as they once were. So what we did was we um, used Kata. And so Kata just says, you know, set your wildly important goal and then define your current state and set some target condition. And you experiment between current and target condition, just trying to get there. And that's where that freedom to fail comes in. I don't know about you, but I have never had a science experiment go 100% correctly on, out of the gate. Mm -hmm. So you're experimenting. And as, as managers and leaders in that company, you have to be okay with those experiments. They're going to fail. Now, you're within a risk tolerance, right? You're not allowing people to blow stuff up. But what you're saying to them is give it a shot. You know your work the best. You know what might work and learn from that failure. No, the experiment's not going to be 100% successful, but learn from it. And each time you experiment, you just get a little bit incrementally closer to that target condition. Can you share a recent example around that as well, just to illustrate? Because I, I think you you made a good point in there, right? You're you're not talking about failing at like making a furnace, right? But it sounds like maybe micro failures are, are what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So we um, put in a lot of production uh, into our plant. In fact, we doubled uh, production within our plant. And we had a lot of learning to do, right? We had brand new molds that we were trying to pour. We had brand new parts. We had to learn how to pour them and how to strip them. And we were losing some really significant large pieces. And what we've always said is don't do the same thing twice. Like you can make mistakes, but do not repeat the same thing. And now people are starting to, to question, okay, why did this fail? Not like, let's just do it again and repeat it and see if it works better the second time. No, like, let's really take a look at it, dig in and figure out what was wrong, change that little part of it and try again but also say you can't change too many variables at one time, right? Because then you don't know what worked. Excellent point. There are a couple other big things that, that I've heard about at Onyx, and, and you've mentioned how second generation family ownership right now, but you created an ESOP, um, employee, um, trying to remember exactly what the acronym is, stock option program, correct? Um, so it's an employee owned company. You know, How did you know that creating an ESOP was the right move for Onyx? So I think a couple of things there. One, the company has to be culturally 
right, I think, for an mm -hmm. easy. So for us, you know, we always we were already going through this continuous improvement. It's part of our mindset. It's part of our culture. We have open, honest, transparent uh, communication. We we tell the employees where the parts are going and uh, how we're doing financially. Um, we don't necessarily disclose the entire company financials, but we talk about sales and we talk about costs. Um, we really try to educate the employees on on how to run a business and the decisions that we're having to make. So all those things go into being a part of an ESOP, right? So you've gone from being an employee to being an owner. And so one mm -hmm. of the things that we get a lot of questions about now is like if we put in a new piece of equipment, if we spend capital money, um, we talk to them and we say, because the question is, why did you spend my money? Well, here's the answer, you know, so maybe we put in a piece of equipment and that piece of equipment is now going to allow us to open up a new marketplace or better serve our clients. Right. And so we tell them the stories and we uh, elaborate on that equipment. So it's great that they're asking questions now. It's not just a place to come to work now. Like logistically, how do you know whether you're good for an ESOP or not? Um, there's a lot of companies out there in the ESOP world that can help you run a feasibility study. Mm -hmm. And that was our very first step because we didn't know. We didn't know if we're big enough or if we're financially healthy or if we had the right number of employees. And so all those questions get answered in a feasibility study. So I would say a general rule of thumb might be 20 employees um, and or more and not a high turnover rate and then financially stable. And if you feel like you fit in that category, you know, go and get that feasibility study done with those professionals. They'll let you know for sure. I, I love that short little checklist, right, for the audience out there, because that's that's always the next thing you want to know, right? It's like, okay, so if this worked for Onyx, what is what might be transferable to other companies where they could pick up those same tips and tricks? So thanks for covering both the logistics and the cultural aspects. Um, you know, I'd love to talk a bit more about the family aspect behind Onyx as well. Um because I've 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 heard this from you as well as other people before, the chances of success going from second generation to third generation that's where things get challenging, right? I can't remember all the statistics off the, off the top of my head, so that's inevitably something that needs to be prepared for, right? In some way, shape, or form, how are you preparing Onyx for the future? Whether it ends up going to your children or the company ends up evolving in some other way, how do you set that up for future success? Yeah, so I think, you know, to start out, um, my husband and I had such a hard time transitioning the business from first to second generation, um, mm -hmm. just like fi the financial impact on the family and the business, right? Because you have a retiring generation who needs the cash, and then you have a business who needs the cash to run. And then you have the two of us who, um, you know, don't necessarily have the personal cash to buy out that, right? So all those just trying to figure out how to transition the business was so impactful and took so long for us as a family that when Drew and I purchased the business from his dad, we knew that we wanted to be really, really thoughtful about how we would transition it in the future. And I think one of the saddest things is for a business owner to not think about that and just one day have to close the doors or one day want to close the doors just because they're done. So that's why we started so early. Um, it was just happenstance that we found an ESOP. So I sat on a succession planning panel in 2019, and that was just one year after we had closed on the business from Drew's father. And I was there as a you know first to second generation owner. And there was a keynote for an ESOP. 
And so I caught Kevin McPhillips from the Pennsylvania Center of Employee Ownership at lunch. And I said, Kevin, you know, I love this ESOP model. What would it take for Onyx to be able to do this? And I thought, you know, I've got years of work ahead of me to set us up to be successful. And it turned out I didn't. So we did, in the middle of the worldwide pandemic, transition the business from um, being our own business into an ESOP in July of 2020. But I can tell you that it has been like an incredible ride. I mean, I always say that we were a good company before, but I feel like we're great now. There's just so much more buy-in and people are more thoughtful. It is their company. It's their money. It's their, you know, they have an ownership stake in it. They see the value of the business every year. They get to celebrate that growth. Um, so for us, it was just a really great way to transition the business. We do have two children. We have boys that are 10 and 12. And at this point, who knows what they're going to do, right? Um, I don't think that the organization would be super excited for me to say, hey, you know, it rests on our kids' shoulders, right? That doesn't necessarily feel great. There's so many reasons that those third generation businesses don't work out. Um, but for us, we just want to be really thoughtful. We want to make sure this business lasted for years beyond our family. Well, I think one of the biggest things is we live in a world where most kids don't even know what they want to do by the time they go to college, right? They may have picked a degree, but it's hard to figure out until you really get your hands into it a little bit, what you want to do forever. So no, I, I love the realistic approach. You know, like you said, who knows, maybe they take it over and you know, take it to another level in the third generation. But I love that you're doing the things that prepare you and ultimately, you know, not not only your kids, but the company, everyone for success, being able to do the things that they find fulfilling. So, you know, we've, we've kind of gone through the story of Onyx, which gets covered in Leading with Grit and Grace. Is there anything we missed that you think would be a big takeaway for the manufacturing audience out there? I think the only other thing I'd love to add is just that we are trying to grow this business and it also is hard to grow businesses organically. So our next thought is to grow through, you know, acquisitions of other businesses. So if there's any businesses out there that are interested in being a part of the Onyx family, um, I would love to hear from you. And if there's ever anybody that wants to talk about organizational culture or leadership or ESOPs, you know, I'm definitely your girl. I'd love to answer those questions too. And for everyone listening out there, I will have links in the show notes where you can connect with Ashley and Onyx. So I'll make sure those are all there over at manufacturinghappyhour.com. We, we've got a little bit of time, so I'm going to get a little meta here because we've been referencing your book quite a bit as well, leading with grit and grace. When when did you realize that that was the right spot to capture your story, right? There are plenty of mediums now. You can post regularly on social media. You can do a podcast. How did you know that writing a book was the way to go for you? Uh, so to be very honest, I'm an engineer by degree. And my answer to everything when people say to write is I don't write. Engineers don't write. That's not what we do. Um, but I had my marketing coordinator actually talked me into doing it. Um, we had just gone through the ESOP conversion and in September of 2020, she said, you know, we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. You've led through two crises, one internal and one external. She said, I really think people need to hear your story, even if it's just, you know, for just a little bit of inspiration and faith to know that there is light at the end of that tunnel. And so what I did was I tried to be very thoughtful and just write a book that was a roadmap for any leader out there 
Um, it's really interesting to talk to people. Everybody resonates with a different portion of the book. And I think it's just whatever you need in that moment in your life, in your journey. Um, I had started writing LinkedIn articles and that was the way that I had kind of a basis for the book, but it was the same thing when I was out with those leaders, they would say, Oh, I really resonated with freedom to fail, or I really want to learn more about the coach approach. And I just realized people need something different. A, a, a general question then what's something you learned from the book writing process <laughs> that's helped you leading the business as well? Um, so I'll tell you something I learned from the book writing process is don't set too tight a timelines. I started in September and my goal was to be published by December 1st, but I had absolutely no idea how many steps there were in writing a book. So mm -hmm. there's an editor, a copy editor, a proofreader. And then on that, uh, there's a book interior and exterior designer and just, you know, project managing that whole process. I did get it done by uh, December 8th, but I definitely set myself a little bit too tight of a timeline. Um, and the best thing that's come out of writing the book is just so many people that I've gotten to interact with, um, literally across the U.S. and the world, um, and, and just hearing their stories. And so then when I hear their stories, it gives me that inspiration and that fuel and that drive just to make our business even better. Well, Ashley, your book is one of the reasons that you popped on my radar. So I'm glad uh, this is just another example of the the networking that's come from it. I do have one final question as we get to the end of this conversation. What is your favorite bottle of Sauvignon Blanc? Do you have a go-to uh, go brand? So I don't have a go-to brand so much just because I love to try different ones. But I do love the marble region of New Zealand. It just has kind of a grapefruit lime um, taste to it usually. And, and so I tend to lean towards those for sure. Excellent. Well, I know we had this conversation in the morning. More so, we're probably still <laughs> drinking our coffee. But the next time, hopefully, we'll be able to uh, enjoy some Sauvignon Blanc for a conversation like this. So with that, what is the best spot to find you and uh, Onyx on the web? Um, so to find me, uh, just reach out on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect or follow me. And then um, Onyx is Onyx Inc. So O-N-E-X-I-N-C.com. And I do have a leadership tab out there. So even if you're not interested in the industrial furnace side of the business, check out that leadership tab. That's where I house um, the podcasts and different uh, you know, professional or business worksheets that I've developed uh, to help you along your journey. Love it. Well, we will have links to all those over at the show notes page. And with that, Ashley, thanks so much for jumping on the show. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did and pulled as many lessons from Ashley as I did. As always, show notes page is over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 82 for episode 82. That's where you can get links to Onyx as well as Ashley's book, Leading with Grit and Grace. I highly recommend you snag a copy for yourself. Before we wrap up, I want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, IME West. If you're listening to this before April 2022 or even in the middle of April 2022, you should be planning on marking your calendar to head out to Anaheim on April 12th through 14th. When I was working as a sales guy out on the West Coast, ATX West 
Fest was the premier automation event, and that's just one of the events included in IME West. You've got MD&M West, Design and Manufacturing West, Plastech West, West Pack. So whether you're in automation, packaging, medical, there is an event for you at IME West. If you want to learn more, head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash IME West and make sure you register today. I also want to say we were talking about the community, the manufacturing happy hour industry community at the start of the episode. If you want to join that group on LinkedIn, you can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. But I do want to say if you enjoyed the episode, there's also one more quick link for you today, and that'll take you over to Apple Podcasts on your iPhone or on your desktop. Go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. I would love it if you could leave a five-star rating and review over on that platform if you are enjoying this podcast. So, again, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. And with that, stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.